You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So if you take your your Bibles and open them to 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll be reading from verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 6. So 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through chapter 4 and verse 6. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of the Great Awakening. It was a spiritual revival uh, that swept through New England in 1740, uh, largely sparked by the preaching and teaching of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, But a year following that, in 1741, Jonathan Edwards found himself addressing people who were criticizing the revival. And also he shared concerns himself as to how do you know and discern a true work of God? 
And so like many of the Puritans in response, he didn't jump on Twitter, he didn't jump on Facebook. He wrote and published a tract called The Five Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. In other words, how do you know if something is genuinely a work of God? And so I kind of want to take those five marks that Edwards came up with and adapt them to the question, what does a gospel-shaped life look like? And so we're beginning a five-week series on looking at five marks, distinguishing factors that should help each of us understand, does my life look like a gospel-shaped life? And then taking those same marks and saying, does our church look like a gospel-shaped or gospel-centered church? Uh, and so in order to do that, uh, the, the very first mark that Edwards mentioned he put it this way and talked about a rising esteem of the glory of Christ. And, and I'm going to paraphrase that and simply use it this way. The first mark we'll look at is a growing desire to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. A growing desire to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at what Paul has to say about that, because in a way, Paul's in a similar situation. Um, he's addressing criticism of his ministry. Uh, he's addressing what the work of God is that God has called him to. And in fact, he will bring before us the glory of Jesus Christ in order to do that. And so this morning, what we'll do is as we go through this passage, we'll look at the surpassing glory of Christ the surpassing work of Christ, and then finally, the surpassing calling of Christ. So the surpassing glory of Christ, the surpassing work of Christ, and then finally, the surpassing calling of Christ. And so if we turn our attention to that first ingredient, the surpassing glory of Christ, that in order to magnify Christ, we must have a firm grasp and a growing grasp of the glory of Christ. And so you'll see in verses 7 through 11, Paul provides us with a, a very concise comparison between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and the New Covenant and the New Testament. And Paul does this in many of his letters, but here he puts before the believers in Corinth, this is why we speak of the glory of Christ. And so you'll notice as you look at this comparison, uh, we'll focus first on the Old Covenant, what Paul says about the Old Covenant here. Notice in verse 7, he says it does refer to it as a ministry. Uh, it came from God. In this section that we've just read, you're going to find the word ministry four times. And it's, it's that very word that we get the root for deacon, one, one who labors or serves for the benefit of others. So he even speaks of the Old Covenant as a, a ministry given by God and for a specific purpose and actually benefit for those who would have received it in the Old Testament. But with that ministry, notice what he goes on to say about it. Uh, it was etched in stone. Uh, it came with glory because it came from God. But then you'll notice also that it brought death and condemnation. Uh, even though it was glorious, it still brought death and condemnation. 
And it was temporary as evidenced and displayed by the fact that Moses's glory from being on the Mount faded as time went on. And the reason Paul says here that this old covenant was glorious yet brought condemnation and judgment was because the purpose of the law and the Old Testament was never to save us, but to point us to and show us our need for an ultimate savior and an ultimate righteous, triumphant and holy king is what the people of God needed, which would only be completed in Christ Jesus. And so we're saying that the old covenant for the time in which it was given was sufficient for the people of Israel to put their faith in God. But Paul now, to show us the surpassing glory of Christ, contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. And so you notice beginning in verse 8, what he says about the new covenant. It is also a ministry, but it's a ministry of the Spirit. And it is even more glorious than the previous covenant. It's more glorious because it results in righteousness. In other words, conformity to the standard in which God has set. Because in Christ now, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And this covenant brings a surpassing glory because it will not fade away. And as he mentions in verse 11, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. So sort of focus in for a moment on just Paul's phrase in verse 10, that this in comparison has a surpassing glory. As a glory that is much greater, it exceeds the previous glory, even though the law is glorious. It is good, it is perfect, it came from God. And the reason this is, because in the new covenant, we have a much greater, a better glory and picture of who God is in Jesus Christ. It's good for us to stop and think, although the old covenant was sufficient, as I said, for that time period that God gave it, that we have something much superior to that. And as the book of Hebrews says, we have a better covenant in Christ Jesus. And so you notice as a result of that in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12, Paul, when he uses the word therefore, indicates he's bringing to a conclusion. He says, we have such a hope that we are very bold, even bolder than the Old Testament saints because of what we have visibly shown to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whereas Moses came down from the mountain with these tablets etched by God with his regulations and requirements, we have the living, breathing word of God and the testimony of the apostles and those who witnessed and saw Christ before them very selves. Notice in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the last part of the verse says, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What a powerful phrase to encapture the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ, that when you speak of the gospel, you are speaking of Christ, who came in the very likeness and image of God. 
two other verses you could look at later is uh, in John 1.14. Remember how John begins his gospel and speaks of the fact that we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, that you have that perfect representation and picture of who God is in Jesus Christ. And then you also find in the book of Hebrews, the very opening chapter tells us that Christ came as the exact glory of the Father, the exact representation of God. And so as Paul and as Jonathan Edwards would speak about the church and the ministry, they would always want to put up front the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of B.B. Warfield. Uh, he served as a professor of theology at Princeton University in the 20th century when it was an evangelical and solid school training pastors and missionaries. Um, but B.B. Warfield described the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament this way. Um, he said it's like the relationship and the difference between going into a room full of furniture but being able to turn on the light. I think that's a great picture that we have in sketchy form, all that is fulfilled in the New Testament, alluded to and foreshadowed in the old. But now we come and see the surpassing glory of Christ as if we're entering a room full of furniture, not now with the light switch off, but with the light switch on. And so we're going to look at a distinguishing mark of the true church of a gospel-shaped life being the surpassing glory of Christ. We need to be thinking about how might that look in your life and in mine. And we'll come, we'll come back to that. Uh, but let's now turn to the second element in this passage, and that is the surpassing work of Christ. And so you see in verses 8 and 9, as Paul presented this comparison, he speaks of this new covenant as being a ministry of the Spirit. And so as we think of all that Christ accomplished being now applied to us through the working of the Holy Spirit, we can divide that maybe into two broad categories. The first is the work of the Holy Spirit in our conversion like how we were drawn to God by his grace through the working, convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And you see the reality of this down further in verses 14 through 16, where Paul talks about the mind being dull, and even the minds of God's people dull through disobedience, and this veil that continues in verse 14, that is only taken away by Jesus Christ. And it's very clear that the imagery of a veil here is figurative. He's talking about a, a type of covering that prevents us from, from seeing and grasping the truth of the gospel, which is the teaching of Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension, and eventual return that we cannot see those things. We cannot make those connections unless it is preceded by the working of the Holy Spirit that draws us, that enables us, and gives us the faith to respond positively to what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. 
And so as we consider the working of God in our own lives, that should give us pause to continue to praise him, to reflect back and think about that initial time when, when maybe everything sort of came together in your heart and in your mind about who Jesus Christ is, uh, whether that was because of one person or numerous people God brought into your life, that definitive moment when it became clear and you made that confession of faith. And that confession is, is very important uh, to not just have it inwardly, but to verbalize it and to agree with God as to the testimony we have of the nature of the gospel. But Paul goes further than that in talking about the surpassing work of God and Christ, and that is the work of the Spirit in our sanctification, which is, I think, where many of us find ourselves. We, we've known the Lord for varying lengths of time, but what does it mean to speak of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in each of us? And so if you look down at verse 18, Paul makes sure that we are clear on what the Spirit is doing. It says in verse 18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the contrast. Moses would veil his face. We have unveiled faces. We have access to God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. But then he mentions to us that we are to reflect God's glory. We are, we are to be a mirroring image of the work that God is doing through his Spirit in each of us in Christ Jesus. And that that work is an ongoing work because he says we are being transformed. This is the same word that in Matthew is rendered transfigured when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the three disciples see his an, a degree of his glory being manifested. It's the root for our word metamorphosis, which indicates a, a radical change and ongoing development. And so as we think of the surpassing work of Christ, let us not just marvel at our conversion and our salvation, but at the ongoing purifying, refining work that is ongoing in each of us in Christ Jesus, that we are to be constantly reflecting his glory. And I think for many of us, we, we get discouraged at times. We realize that that hasn't been as well as it should be this week. And so that should give us pause to humble ourselves, to confess that to Christ, but it should also remind us, if we can look and say, I'm reflecting Christ more today than I was yesterday, that should encourage us. That should cause us to think about the surpassing work of Jesus Christ through the ministry and working of the Holy Spirit. And you see in the beginning of chapter 4, as Paul talks about his own ministry and his own calling in Christ, Notice in chapter 4, he gives you both positive and negative aspects, referencing the inward working of the Spirit, how it is visibly manifested. And so he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. 
So probably what he's referring to is there are others who are doing that. Even in Paul's day, in the name of God, but they're distorting scripture. They're using manipulative means to present the gospel, to talk about God. He says, we do not do that. We, we distance ourselves from anything that does not reflect the glory of Christ. But instead, as he goes on, he says, on the contrary, we are setting forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves in every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, there is a consistency in Paul's life that was reflecting the glory of Christ. That what people are impressed with is not Paul's knowledge, not Paul's personality, but Paul's relationship with Christ. And that should give each of us food for thought that when we leave conversations, even when we leave this Zoom worship time, that, that you're not dwelling on the color of my sweater vest or the background between different people's pictures, but, but you're, you're leaving with a deeper understanding of the surpassing glory of God in Christ Jesus and the surpassing work of Christ applied to us through the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to the third element, and that is the surpassing calling of Christ. Since these other, true, the other two principles are true, how does that impact us personally? How did it impact Paul personally? Because he's not just seeking to give some theological lecture here, uh, but to talk about the reality of a gospel-shaped life. And that gospel-shaped life, as we're considering this morning, is first of all distinguished by an increasing desire to magnify Christ. And so notice in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Paul writes, for we do not preach Christ ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Uh, now Paul has said in his first letter to the church of Corinth that he seeks to only know Christ and Christ crucified, which is a part of the glory of Christ. Uh, but in this case, he brings to mind the surpassing calling of Christ. Paul has been called to preach Christ. Christ is the gospel. The glory of Christ is the gospel. And as that message is proclaimed, Christ is magnified. Uh, the word magnify simply means to, to exalt or to think and act in accordance to what one is or what God is worthy of. And so it's important when we think of magnifying Christ, we're not adding anything to who God is. He is God. He is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. But by magnifying him, we are more fully ascribing to him what he rightfully deserves. And so in this case, it is the calling that's very important. As Paul says in verse 5, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. And, and we get so used to using those words, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, that, that we maybe fail to realize the significance for a first century culture 
of Jews and Gentiles, what each of those titles meant. So for example, uh, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul talks about the definition of a Christian, to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, uh, to believe in your heart. Um, but the same reality is true for a Jew to acknowledge Jesus Christ is to say that Jesus is the Messiah, to say that he is fully God. That is, a, that is a radical step for someone like Paul himself, who grew up in Judaism, to now confess that there's one God, but that one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that, that's a challenging and really an ostracizing statement to make, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ. But also for a Gentile to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord is to take a title, Lord, that was used by emperors and now say, you know what, Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. And to say that in the Roman Empire is in a sense to saying it's not Nero who I should fear, it's not Nero who is to have my ultimate allegiance and obedience. It is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so that calling is very distinct. And what does that look like then in Paul's life? Because if we want to understand what it means to increasingly magnify Christ Jesus, then a helpful thought would be, what does it look like in Paul's life? Well, you get a glimpse of that in chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 when Paul says that it is through God's mercy we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. And it seems clear, at least in that part of the verse, Paul is talking about his ministry as an apostle. Uh, he has received the grace of God that every believer receives. But in addition to that, he has received the gracious calling to be an apostle, to be one of those original founding stones who will take the teaching of Christ and communicate it to others. So what does it look like to magnify Christ in Paul's life? To be faithful to that distinct calling, uh, to be actively doing that, which we see throughout the pages of his letters, that he has been faithful to that. So much that at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he can say, I, I have run the good race. I've competed to the fullest, and I'm ready to go home and be with my Lord and Savior. But notice in the verse that I just read in verses 1 and 2, uh, that Paul also references that that calling makes him a servant to others. Because it, it sort of surprises us when you're reading this, and, and Paul references the fact that, that he's a servant, not here of Christ, but because of his calling, he's a servant of those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's calling is not just his relationship to the Lord, but out of that, his relationship to one another. He is your servants for Jesus' sake. But now to kind of help bring that maybe more applicable to us, what should it look like in your life and mine 
to magnify Christ. Because although you could read verses one and two and say, well, he's saying we, seems to be clear, he means the apostles. I think as you read further and he uses phrases like we and our, that Paul's also implying that although there's a distinctive calling he has, that Paul's experiences are also reflected in the life of each and every believer. And so we shouldn't read these verses about we don't lose heart and you know we have we have a calling in Christ Jesus is just unique to Paul. It is applying to all of us. And so the question I want to ask you to think about is is what would that look like in your life and my life to increasingly magnify Christ? One would be maybe to assess, certainly, how is our private, personal, devotional time going? Are, are we consistently seeking to read the scriptures, to, to understand in a more deeper way who Jesus Christ is, and responding to him appropriately? Can we magnify Christ in our prayers by not merely having them be just filled with petitions, but also filled with praise and thankfulness. As we answer these questions individually, apply them to us in a Zoom setting like this. Has the focus of our time together been not just on community, on seeing each other, on hearing some news about each other, but has it been on focusing on the surpassing glory of Christ and how that should be lived out and made visible in our lives as his children, where we are continually being transformed and visibly showing others the likeness of who Jesus Christ is. And then if we think of the gospel-shaped life, there'll be another mark we'll consider in a few weeks, but Paul's reference here does that show that you see yourself in Christ as a servant of others in Christ? We've talked a lot about, like many churches, of the importance of connecting with each other, especially during this time of, of distancing. But, but are we initiators of that? Are we showing our concern that the reason we're concerned is for the sake of Jesus? In other words, when we fail to do any of the things that I've mentioned from a right heart attitude, then we're really not magnifying Christ, which is what the heart of this passage is talking about, magnifying, reflecting Christ in all that we say and do. This is not alone unique to Paul's letter to Corinthians in Ephesians 4.1. He'll challenge the believers in Ephesus to, to live up to the calling that is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, and Paul uses a word that's very strong. I, I implore you. I, I urge you. And I would say the same to each one of us and myself. I urge you to live up to the calling that is yours in Christ Jesus. And the reason is, when we don't live up to that calling, then it is reflecting negatively on the glory of Christ, on the glory of the gospel, on the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. 
when the 300th anniversary of John Calvin was celebrated in Geneva, uh, Calvin, one of the Genevan reformers, um, as they spoke about his life, uh, they, they kind of gave him this tribute, which is so fitting. They said that John Calvin, in his life, his overruling principle, the principle of all his activity, the aim of his whole life was the glory of Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing if people would say that about us? If, if you would be able to say that about your brothers and sisters in Christ, of others in your family at New Hope, that, that the aim in their life was just so clear. It was the glory of Christ. And the way they pursued that was being a servant of others in Christ, of recognizing his surpassing glory of living in the reality of the surpassing work of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And then daily, the surpassing calling of Christ, constantly keeping that before us. So we're left with just weighing and praying about this first mark, distinguishing mark of a gospel-shaped life of, let's add to that, a gospel-shaped church a growing desire to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ.